hits IS oil wells and the Syria air war is on. Cameron and Fallon lay it on the line. The UK is in for the duration. This is going to take time. It is complex. It is difficult. What we're asking our pilots to do and our thoughts should be with them and their families as they commence this important work. And America tops up its special forces in the Middle East. RAF tornadoes are bombing Syria. Within an hour of last night's Commons vote, four jets were on afterburn and heading for IS targets. This morning, I went out to RAF Northolt and spoke to the man who made this happen, the Prime Minister, David Cameron. Well, I think it's good for the country. There was a compelling case for extending our airstrikes from Iraq to Syria, and I was glad to see such strong support right across Parliament, actually from members of six different political parties voting in favour of this necessary action. You've made much of the importance of the UK to support its allies in striking Syria. What kind of reaction have you had from the international community? Well, there will be strong support from our allies because they wanted us to join them in taking this action. There'll be strong support from other countries. I've just been on the telephone to Chancellor Merkel of Germany and the Germans are stepping up what they are doing uh, in the region. And there'll be very strong support from uh, Muslim countries, Gulf countries, um, that have asked us to take part in this action as part of a process that will actually help to deliver the political and diplomatic change that we need in Syria as well. But we're going to need to be patient and persistent. This is going to take time. It is complex. It is difficult. What we're asking our pilots to do, and our thoughts should be with them and their families, as they commence this important work. You are sending RAF crews into a crowded and volatile airspace. How much more dangerous is Syria than Iraq? Well, look, there is no way of taking part in these operations without danger and without risk. But we have very professional pilots. We have uh, superb equipment. Uh, we'll do everything we can to deconflict uh, with other countries and make sure that these things are, are carefully planned. But the work they do is vital. We must be patient. Uh, we must be persistent. Uh, but above all, we should think of them and their families as they do this dangerous and difficult work. Patient and persistent, this mission stretches the RAF to the limits. How long will it go on for and can they cope? Well, I don't want to put a uh, limit on it because the work we're doing, the work our RAF pilots are doing, is so essential to our national security. We have to degrade and destroy ISIL in Iraq and in Syria. And remember, it's in Syria that this organisation has its headquarters. But they're very brave people, they're extremely capable and professional, and we'll give them all the support that they need as they do their work. You've called this a generational battle beyond what the UK's armed forces are doing at the moment. Are you likely to ask any more of them in the fight against ISIL? The reason I call this a generational struggle is that we are fighting Islamist extremist violence, not only in Iraq and Syria, but we see problems in other parts of the world, including in our own country. And so my argument is, yes, there's vital work for the RAF to do over the fly skies of Iraq and Syria, but there's work for our counter-terrorism police to do, there's work for our communities to do, frankly, there's work for all of us to do, to take on, uh, as I call it, this generational struggle uh, against some people who've perverted the great religion of Islam and who we have to defeat. 
The Prime Minister, David Cameron. Well, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Well, after all the debate yesterday, Christopher, um, what do you make about the, the things he was saying today? The first thing is the whole atmosphere is built up that this is the UK going to war with ISIS. And the UK is a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of the war against ISIS. But Isn't it, I suppose, natural for politicians to do that, though, really, because they've got to make the case for doing it and make it seem as significant as it possibly can be? The politicians have to balance two things. One is that is does, does the country want to do what they want to do? Can they take the country along with them if they don't want to do what they want to do? Uh, the second part of it is to stay in the first 11 uh, where they think it's their rightful home for international relations, who your who your allies are, etc. Now, for example, um, why do it in the first place? I mean, there is no huge military argument for increasing the way that the air force is being used in the Middle East. No huge argument. Nobody's screaming out for it. The Americans say we'd like brimstone along. Of course, the French have requested their allies that, to and help. And then that is the whole point. The French have uh, requested. And later on, we're going to hear from Margaret Beckett, for example, who said, just supposing you put it around the other way. Hmm. Just supposing it was London, not Paris. And they said, but, that's it. Okay. But the point is, you need to be on board after Paris and you need to be on board, and the only way to do that is to do it visibly. And because this is, to some extent, what it's about. Politically, this is about a long game here, really, isn't it? It's Britain's place in the world long term, is it not? Yeah, it is Britain's place in the world, and it's Britain's place in the Middle East. But there is something else going on here, um, and that is that we are not at war in the sense that we've always understood war. That's very important to understand this, because uh, it's how you spread out and who you, who you go to war with. The second part of it is this, um, this, this idea of um, you've got a different image. Asymmetric warfare is what we've talked about for so much, isn't it? It's when you fight somewhere which is not a state. And this is the first time that Britain has been at war since the Middle Ages where it's not fighting a state. Mm -hmm. And it requires a totally different idea, and it, and it requires one other thing which we haven't heard for the past 48 hours. Somebody is going to be sitting there in Whitehall and say, mm -hmm. is there a different way of doing this? Let's just talk about the, the first targets that have been chosen in Syria and how that plays out. In the, I mean, we, we talk about the influence that Britain can have. How, how does that show the way we're going to be going with these airstrikes? Well, I mean, you look at, look at the aircraft as it's taking off or taxiing, and you see what it's carrying on board. If it's got a brimstone on board, it's going after a Toyota, frankly, driven down a highway, dusty highway. And we, we've, we've seen paveways so far. And we've seen paveways. Now, paveways are big, big bombs. And they, uh, their idea of those, they will smash a building. They will go right in and take it apart. So you can go into a, a sort of a, a storage. And uh, you can go for the fuel sources. The fuel sources. Um, but here's another side of it. Um, we, hear the, the, we hear from the Prime Minister saying there, we are, the, the pilots mm. are going to be degrading it. And then he says we're going to destroy it. No, says the RAF, we're not going to destroy ISIS doing this. This is part of the whole work up to the hope that there will be a destruction of ISIS. But the RAF was not going to destroy it. There, I think, perhaps just a tire slip of the tongue using the word destroying ISIS. They're not going to do it by themselves. They're part of what's going on. Well, James Hurst has been speaking to the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon. Well, the aim of the mission last night, uh, four tornadoes uh, took off from Akrotiri and struck at uh, oil well targets in the Omar oil field in eastern Syria. This is part of our effort to help our allies to degrade the terrorists by cutting off their sources 
of uh, revenue. They derive a lot of money from uh, producing, distributing and selling oil, and we need to stop that. In terms of the contribution Britain is looking to make, perhaps oil fields are uh, a less complex target than urban environments like Raqqa. There are going to be more complex missions ahead, aren't there? There was a lot of talk in the debate yesterday about Raqqa, but this operation isn't simply about Raqqa. There are plenty of other targets that need to be dealt with. Uh, supply routes between uh, Syria and Iraq, depots, logistics, command and control. There are plenty of targets apart from uh, their headquarters in Raqqa itself. Uh, the first RAF typhoons thought to be joining the campaign were seen taking off from Lossiemouth this morning. How many more RAF planes and crews will be joining this mission now? Well, today we're doubling the strike force that's available at RAF Akrotiri by sending two more tornadoes and six typhoons, typhoon aircraft for the first time, going into theatre. That doubles the resources available to our commanders in Akrotiri and I hope will make a quantitative as well as a qualitative difference to the campaign in Syria. How long do you think these aircraft will be involved in the campaign? Because it's a big ask. I heard one commentator saying effectively that the whole RAF is now committed. Well, the RAF is now out there working extremely hard um, and, and has other tasks, of course, to defend us here at home, our own airspace, uh, to defend the Falklands, and uh, is stationed elsewhere. And the RAF is working extremely hard at the moment. But I'm assured by the air staff that they're ready for this challenge, they're up for it, and uh, they will be there as long as we need them to be there. Uh, and we heard a phrase during the Libya campaign quite a lot, uh, when again the RAF was heavily committed, sweating the metal, the crews and the planes being asked to work really hard. That, that can only be maintained for so long to, to operate at full stretch? Well, I think if you talk to the crews, and I did talk to them up at RAF Marham a few weeks ago, if you talk to them, um, I, I think you'll find they like being worked. They like doing things rather than sitting, sitting uh, on their bases. They like uh, doing what they've been trained to do, and they will accept this challenge. As a mission overall, to achieve your aims of degrading and ultimately defeating ISIS... How long is this fight going to take? It's not going to be months, is it? We've not put a timetable on it. I think the American Secretary of State said the Iraq campaign might take at least three years. And we're not halfway through that yet. And there's still a lot of work to be done to push the terrorists out of Iraq. So we've not put a timetable on it. But the good news from yesterday is that a strong and decisive vote in Parliament enables the RAF to strike the other side of a very artificial border that the terrorists themselves don't recognise. We know there are differences with Syria, though. We know, for example, it is a country that has its own air defences. We also know, after the downing of a Russian jet, Russia is fitting its aircraft with air-to-air -air missiles. What is the assessment that has been made of how much greater the risks are for operating in Syria compared with Iraq? Well, we obviously carry out a risk assessment uh, of, of any new theatre, and I'm not going to discuss publicly the defensive aids available to our aircraft. But uh, one thing I should say is the coalition has already a memorandum of understanding uh, with Russia in terms of air safety, so that there are safe distances put between uh, aircraft if they're operating in the same area. And you're confident the additional risks are worth taking? Oh, we have to be part of this fight, 
France has asked us for help. The United Nations has called on all its members to suppress this terrorism, to eradicate the terrorist safe haven. And uh, I'm delighted now that the vote last night means that we are a serious ally in this fight. That was Defence Secretary Michael Fallon speaking to James Hurst. Um, Christopher, he said in that interview that there was a doubling of resources in RAF Akrotiri, two tornadoes and six typhoons taking part. Yeah. I tell you, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? If you really want to go and bomb an oil well or, um, you know, stick a brimstone into the back of a truck, um, then tornadoes are very good. And people moan about them. Well, you know, they're very old and sometimes they and don't the work. And the typhoons? But don't forget the tornado is good for that job. And you don't always fight the first 11. Typhoons are multi-role and can do it. But I always think of them as air defence. And um, there's not much need. So you're going to have to use them in a role which they don't normally uh, be used for. The other thing is the brimstone itself. We, you know, the Americans say, bring along the brimstone so we can make these very, very tight shots. And how, ma- how many has the UK got? I don't think they've got that many. They, they run out at about 300,000 a time every time you fire one. Mm. But I don't think they've got more than a dozen. So somebody... Uh, is making more brimstones and they have to do it very, very quickly. Let's just talk about the ground troops on which uh, this mission re- relies, you could say, I suppose. Um, and as I understand it, uh, very much the strategy is to, to get those who want to fight IS on the ground to do so, to create a space, and then in some way to sort of create some kind of peace in, in, in Syria. We've always talked about, haven't we? We've always talked about the idea that if you're going to settle the problem of Syria and Iraq, which are quite different problems, uh, then you have to do it locally. So you have to use people like the Peshmerga being used, uh, the, the Kurdish Peshmerga and being used. And some of these people, though, that, that Britain would be having to support, they would not usually choose as allies. No. I mean, if you get to this idea that, I mean, remember the 70,000 uh, people that the Prime Minister talked about, which don't exist, and there are about, about 14 different organisations, and none of them likes each other, and if they got into power, there would be the most terrible bloodbath. So forget that. Forget that. That was a mistake by him, and let's forget it altogether. Let me talk about it in your whole life again, because it's all going to change okay. in the next couple of weeks. But what is important... All going to change? Yeah, it's all going to change. change? It's all going to change. Look into that crystal ball. Okay, the crystal ball in any warfare starts off. You go into war, and within 15 minutes the plan, you may as well tear it up, because things have happened as a result of it. You've got to remember you're fighting a guerrilla warfare, essentially. You're not fighting a state that you can actually negotiate with, or whatever, when it comes to the hard times. And you've also got to remember Britain's part in this. Britain, uh, as a result of that a vote didn't say, okay, the, the job's going to be done because the Brits are coming. Britain's part in the Syrian, the Syrian assault or the assault on ISIS or IS in Syria is going to be about 8%, 8% of the total effort. Put it in that context and you've got an idea of what we'll be doing. Well, MP spent more than 10 hours debating whether to bomb Syria yesterday in the Commons. To brand those who plan to vote against the government as terrorist sympathisers both demeans the office of the Prime Minister and, I believe, undermines the seriousness of the deliberations we're having today. Our French allies have explicitly asked us for such support and I invite the House to consider how we would feel and what we would say if what took place in Paris had happened in London, if we had explicitly asked France for support and France had refused. I appeal to colleagues on all sides to make sure we do not ignore the lessons of Afghanistan, ignore the lessons of Iraq, ignore the lessons of Libya. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. My view, Mr Speaker, 
is that we must now confront this evil. It is now time for us to do our bit in Syria. And that is why I ask my colleagues to vote for this motion tonight. Well, you heard there the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, Margaret Beckett, the SNP's Angus Robertson and Shadow Foreign Secretary Hilary Benn. Well, earlier today, I managed to speak to former Foreign Secretary Dame Margaret Beckett. These are complex and difficult issues. Um, And everybody had anxieties about, you know, ground troops, about the end game, about reconstruction and, and all of those things, all perfectly legitimate concerns. But the two things that tipped me... Um, over the edge in terms of how to vote were the content of the United Nations resolution because that didn't just say you know we authorise people to say. it actually actively called on member states yes to pursue the path of peace but also to pursue action military action and it also did so now it didn't say you know let's see how we get on with the peace process and if that doesn't work, we can take action. It called on member states to take action against what that Security Council resolution passed unanimously called an unprecedented threat to international peace and security. That was the real thing that was the clincher for me. And you, you also made the point about a friend asking for help and the basis of the Entente Cordiale, the, the treaty we've had with France for more than 100 years. And given the sort of enemy we now face, will this kind of thing become even more important in years to come? Yes, I think it probably will. Um, I, I mean, it's noticeable. I think we all understand and how and, and why, how reluctant the Germans are, for example, um, to commit to action. But if you notice, the German parliament has recently approved, yes, a, a limited involvement, but an involvement that was hard for them. That was Dame Margaret Beckett speaking to me earlier. Christopher, it does seem we're in the business of winning our heart, the hearts and minds of our allies here. It is a new international... Uh, game that's being played, a war game that's being played. Isn't you're out there this morning with um, uh, with with the prime minister off to where was he going? I can't remember. But, but Bulgaria, Eastern Europe, Bulgaria. I was told. Okay, Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Uh, the next visit is going to be on on the telephone uh, to, to other countries, certainly in in the in in the uh, Commonwealth. Don't forget, you know, Britain has got 52 members of the Commonwealth. It'll be gathering support. The political sport you need when you go into the United Nations and you're looking for another resolution. For example, the resolution that Margaret Beckett was talking about in the United Nations, uh, 2673, uh, it, it says military action. It doesn't say what military action. It doesn't say what you can do, what you can't do, who's got to invite you, what are the legal uh, uh, parameters of the whole thing. This is where I think uh, Cameron is absolutely right. This is an international thing uh, with countries supporting it or not, uh, who have nothing to do with it because they have one thing in the back of their mind. They could get themselves a Paris in their capital cities at any one time. Well, the US Defence Secretary Ash Carter has, is sending more special forces to the Middle East. He says he wants IS never to know who is looking in the window. No boots on the ground is the coalition rule. So what do we do with special forces? Christopher? Uh, you know, the, 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 there's an image, isn't there, for example, of the, uh, of the um, SAS... Um, and uh, the three regiments going in and doing sort of you-can't-see-me stuff and cutting throats and blowing people up. Actually, all these special forces were originally formed as reconnaissance units to go and find out, go and look 
as Ash Carter says, go and look through the window, scare the life out of them, find out what's going on. How many people might he be talking about? Well, you work it. You you can work in sort of squadrons or or, or groups of as few as six. What you, if you've got a razor guided missile, for example, it's really good to have some guy quite close to it on the ground, who can actually confirm what the target is. Do you remember we were talking about Afghanistan, a terrible accident in Afghanistan, when the people on the ground talking to the aircraft had got the wrong place Indeed. and it turned out to be a hospital. Yes. That's what you use. France, That's what you use people for as much as you might use them for 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 picking up something and sealing as the American seals did with uh, Osama bin Laden. Just relating this to the situation on the ground in Syria. I mean how how can it be coordinated between um the airstrikes and the various disparate groups on the ground who may all have different uh, motivations long term. Well, forget the forget the so-called rebels, the people you know, the Syrian, moderate ones, the, 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 the moderate Syrian Free Army, etc. Because they're all going for uh, for President Assad, so they're not. They gonna, are supposed to be being persuaded to tackle IS first. Yeah, they're supposed to be. And um, for example, last year when the Americans were sent a team in to actually sort of get them organised, do you know how many they converted? Six. They trained six people to go and do it. That is the forget that. What you've got to do. And I suspect what you're going to have to do eventually is you're going to take the American command in Iraq and put it in charge of the whole operation, and we'll all have to sign up to that. The best thing you can hope for is sub-commands, which will actually make the thing work. NATO's got a new member, or it's going to have one. Montenegro is becoming the 29th member of the North Atlantic Alliance. But not everyone's happy. Jonathan Isle is International Director at the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Jonathan. Why does NATO want Montenegro? Well, effectively, uh, the, the, real, the real interest is not actually in terms of capabilities. This is a very small country and one uh, which has been still hollowed out by economic trouble. Uh, the, the key message here is to Moscow, is to Russia. And the message is that what President Putin of Russia has tried to do, which is to put a stop to NATO's expansion, to suggest that Europe could be divided into spheres of influence, will not be acceptable. So in many respects, this is the lowest level of messaging that we can give to the Russians. Uh, it's, it's, it's nonsense to suggest that Montenegro is important either for us or for the Russians, but it is important uh, just in order to say that we are not going to accept spheres of influence in Europe and we are certainly not going to accept that Russia has a right of veto over NATO decisions. And quite a sobering thought to think that only 16 years ago NATO was dropping bombs there. Indeed, and in a way it's sobering, but it's encouraging as well. I mean, the real price for NATO in the future would be to actually stabilise the whole Balkan region. And the biggest country in the region which is not part of NATO, which has not been invited yet, and which is many years away from it, is of course Serbia. So there's many unfinished business there, but the fact that Montenegro was subjected to bombing in 1999 and now joins the alliance which was its enemy then, is, I would submit, actually an encouraging sign mm. of how Europe can change. You say, you say that, the, that the, the aim may be to stabilise the Balkans, but, I mean, Russia's not happy with this and is already threatening some kind of retaliatory actions. 
it is, and we are likely to see this retaliatory action. One of the curiosities of Montenegro is that a lot of the real estate and economic activity in that little country is actually controlled by Russian elements, largely oligarchs, uh, trying to escape uh, from Russia itself. So it's a very murky region uh, of the Balkans into which uh, NATO is stepping. We are likely to see some retaliatory measures from President Putin, perhaps by trying to get closer to Serbia in order to counterbalance NATO. But the calculation was that we can't afford to leave the message which the Russians wanted to leave, which is that Europe could be carved up into spheres of influence. Christopher Lee, how significant do you see this? I think it's very important that um, that you have something that, that shows that there is another way for certain regions of of, of, of Europe, and that and the Balkans are the perfect example. But let's just slip it round to another way for a moment, which we've done before. If you were a Russian president certainly as somebody with the personality of President Putin. And then in 1990... What's that personality? Well, here we come to it. 1991, uh, when the whole thing appeared to collapse, communism, etc., and Europe was sorting itself out. And NATO said, you know, don't worry about this, Moscow. We are not going to move in on your former uh, near abroad uh, territories. We're not going to do anything like that. And then 18 months later, you were exercising in Hungary. And then you had these people starting to line up and join NATO you might get your Russian knickers in quite a twist, wouldn't you? <laughs> eh? uh, you really can understand why somebody gets. I'd love up to know s- what that expression is in Russian. <laughs> well, it means nothing, nothing like Nishivoy, Nishivoy, Nishivoy. Jonathan will tell us that. Yeah, Jonathan, what is that in Russian? <laughs> no, no, pass. Um, however, I think we've got to be very careful here. It's absolutely right that the uh, emotional feeling of the Russians is one of loss and a sort of resentment that we seem to be capitalising on the loss. But let's remember nobody is forced to join the alliance. If countries don't want to join, like Finland, like Sweden, if they don't want to join the alliance, they're quite free to do so. The point is different. The point is whether we should have refused yeah, well, people, there are people to in countries Mon- who want to be members and, and in Monten- just because Moscow poses. But in Montenegro itself, the, the public there are divided on this, aren't they? They are divided, but the leadership is not. So it would be up to the Montenegrin leadership to work it out with its own population. We're not running uh, plebiscites. We are dealing with governments. In all the countries of Eastern Europe, it is true to say that the support for NATO was much higher. But if ultimately the Montenegrin parliament doesn't ratify this, it wouldn't pass. Christopher. Just thinking um, how it's only, what, a couple of years ago uh, that we thought, it was all going to a in, in a handbasket to hell, wasn't it? In 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 Europe, Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine with us. What really bothered us, and we ran exercise, started up exercises to show the Russians to keep out of the back door, and then they took Crimea, etc., etc. Now you never hear about Ukraine, even though a lot of important things are going. It's how this sort of strategic um, focus how the eyesight sort of gets gets mm. quilted and now here we are in something which we think is much bigger and it's going to go on for much longer and so all this doesn't seem important anymore but it is it's extremely important and it's, an expo- it's as important now as it was two Jonathan, and a half years ago what, what do you think the consequences of this signing will be? You're, you're saying that NATO is kind of hitting Russia where it hurts emotionally what, what do you think will happen, the consequences long term will be between the relationship between the two? 
Well, uh, we're trying to soften the blow. Uh, there was a suggestion from NATO that uh, the dialogue between NATO and Russia, which was frozen after the Russians invaded Ukraine, could be restarted. So, in a way, if Mr. Putin uh, wants to re-engage in a dialogue, he can. Uh, but we are, in a way, cornered. Doing nothing would have been tantamount to accepting Putin's diktat in Europe. Mm. So, in a way, I envisage that the relationship is going to nosedive. Uh, but, I repeat, I'm not sure that we had many options on this. All right. Jonathan Isle from the Royal United Services Institute. Thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher, so uh, the relationship's going to nosedive. I'm feeling a bit negative now. Anything positive to say? I think you're yeah, positive to say um, about past 24 hours, past 48 hours. Um, what I, I was at, went along to Parliament and watched what I thought was great theatre, political theatre. The people that appeared, the people, what they had to say. Um, Did you feel it was democracy really at work? Though? Well, I'm not sure. Any, I don't think democracy works very well in, in, in Westminster anyway. But the, it, what was what was particularly what was particularly sort of interesting about it is that if is the numbers of people that stuck it out. There was something 150 people wanted to speak on it, and, and the speaker says, "Yes, you can all speak." But it was the the quality of the debate and the urgency of it and the passions in Do it. Do you feel that every question was asked that needed to be asked? Um, no. The real what question. You, what would yours have been? Uh, mine would have been: uh, Is this war, or is it in the intervention in an international anti-terrorist organisation? The one thing that was interesting, though, nothing to do with the uh, Syria or anything. Tony Benn, a little boy, Hillary, made his speech to get the leadership of the Labour Party. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back same time next week. Bye bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.